Alright, hello, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. Uh, so the 1960s and the 1970s uh, have generally been understood as a time of crisis in the United States and in many other countries around the world. Hardly a day went by, it seems, without a book or article being published on the energy crisis or the housing crisis or the education crisis or the urban crisis. <sighs> Or the youth crisis, or the economic crisis, or the administrative crisis, or the copyright crisis, or the crisis in political participation, and so on and so on. Uh, as one observer wrote at the time, modern society seemed to be encountering a rising, cry, a rising curve of unpleasant surprises. Well, I'm going to do a series of episodes on what contemporary observers thought about these crises. Um, so I'm interested in what's uh, not so much interested in what scholars today think is the historical truth, although I'm also interested in that. But um, mainly I'm especially interested in what people thought at the time. There's a lot of scholars, uh, philosophers, intellectuals of various kinds that were uh, writing at the time. And I'm curious about what they thought because I'm interested in them and I'm interested in the period of time for various reasons. Uh, but today I'm going to look at James Michener. That's right, James Michener. Michener was a member of the older generation who observed the 1960s, and he observed them with a mix of critical insight and compassion. Michener wrote a pair of large books based on his observations. Uh, the Drifters, which was a work of fiction, and Kent State, which is a work of reportage. Both were published, actually, in 1971. And actually, a number of books that I'll talk about were published around this time. Uh, so I'm going to focus today on Kent State, on his book Kent State, and what Michener has to say there about lifestyle and language. The book uh, Kent State is, of course, about the shootings that took place at Kent State University. This is in Ohio, uh, in the United States, if you're an international listener. And this took place on May 4th, 1970. Uh, so the National Guard had been called into Kent State before the, uh, you know, around this time in response to large-scale protests and rioting. And on May 4th, it, uh, they ended up shooting and killing four students and injuring many others. So shortly after this shooting occurred, the magazine, Reader's Digest, an American magazine, started sending reporters to Kent to research what had happened. Uh, eventually, Michener, uh, kind of a famous novelist at that time, or famous writer, um, not only a novelist, but best known as a novelist, he was called in to help with the research and the writing. So the book is an extraordinary document. It probably contains some errors, as some other later scholars have argued, but it's still a useful book for understanding this time in American history. Michener uh, devotes two long sections to lifestyle and language though the topics come up again and again and again throughout the book. I mean, they're major topics in the book, but he devotes specifically two sections on those, and we'll look at those as well as some other comments he makes. Uh, but language, we can say, is actually part of lifestyle. You could think of it as a part of lifestyle, but it's important enough that Michener focuses on it separately, so it gets its own separate section in the book. And he, of course, returns to that topic many other times in small ways. The question of lifestyle and the clash of lifestyles between the 60s generation, the generation that came of age in the 1960s, so the clash between them and the previous generations, uh, this was at the forefront of it, the national culture in a way that's hard to understand today. 
It's hard to understand because the youth lifestyle of the 60s was such a large break with the past that I don't think it could really be outdone by later changes in lifestyle. Perhaps no larger generation gap is possible than the one that happened in the 60s between young people and their parents and grandparents. Has one generation ever so widely and so forcefully rejected the lifestyle of another? We look at this in either way. The young rejecting the old and the old rejecting the young. Uh, the break between generations was so strong that many parents who were interviewed for Michener's book seemed to be just fine with the thought of their kids getting killed at Kent State University. Um, maybe not the parents of the kids who were actually killed. Um, but parents whose kids were at the university or similar universities seemed uh, okay with the thought that their kids might have been killed. Uh, not every parent felt like this at the time, of course. Um, but in reading the book, I was pretty shocked by how common the sentiment seems to have been. Maybe it was just exaggeration, but still it's a hell of an exaggeration of your feelings. Uh, for a time, it was almost mainstream for children and parents to be pitted against each other in a kind of cold war. Um, what was the, the new lifestyle that so irritated the older generations, or at least enough of them to make a big difference in the culture? Uh, there were a number of features of the youth, youth lifestyle. Um, how people dressed and maintained or unmaintained their hair is an obvious one. If you look back at pictures from that era, you've probably seen these kinds of pictures or similar representations in movies. Uh, the traditional style of dress in the U United States apparently comes out of our Puritan heritage and is based on fairly simple colors um, for you know, black, white, gray, and brown, at least for kind of the, the Anglo or kind of white uh, population. Uh, you know, the colors might change depending on the materials, but they were within a fairly uh, conservative range. Obviously, the clothing of the 60s generation was much more colorful if you've seen pictures. But somehow the really visible thing that people kept coming back to was hairstyles. And this seems kind of strange looking back. Why are people so hung up about men's hairstyles? So it was especially the men's hairstyles that was a, a bone of contention. Older people just couldn't accept long hair on men for some reason, which I'll, I'll kind of hint, give my give an opinion about that but for them hair length was an index of your character this is said pretty explicitly in the book long hair basically meant you were immoral and untrustworthy goes going hair that touches your collar that's kind of the line in the sand um <clears throat> so which again i think this is a little weird because having short hair is not super traditional if you look back before the 20th century it seems like in western culture the mainstreaming of short hair on men that seems to go back to the World War era in the early 20th century. Around this time, men uh, seemed to start cutting their hair short because it was more convenient for military service. And I suppose short hair, because of this, got identified with things like patriotism and maybe civic-mindedness. So after this point, long hair would then become a potential sign of being unpatriotic. And indeed, a kind of anti-patriotism was part of the new youth lifestyle. But perhaps I'll quote Michener's paraphrase of the beliefs that went with the new, uh, the new lifestyle. This will be a long quote from the book, but it gives a clear and a pretty comprehensive account of why young people looked, acted, and thought the way they did. So it's a kind of a long 
description, first-person description of beliefs of the time. So Michener writes, The new style people say of themselves, We start with a positive interpretation of life. Indeed, an optimistic one. We preach love, freedom, interdependence, personal responsibility, and a radically new theory of society. The beliefs which have traditionally kept society organized, we no longer accept. And the system of rewards which have encouraged the individual to operate within society, we reject. To be specific, our new lifestyle ridicules the Puritan ethic as archaic and destructive, saving money, hoarding against a rainy day, fear of what one's neighbor might think, and all the other boogeymen that have been used to make us behave are seen as ridiculous intrusions on the individual's freedom. God is sometimes respected more than he is in formalized religion, and religion acquires a deeper personal meaning. We are by no means atheists, but the religions we subscribe to are often older than uh, often the older religions of the East. Christianity is no longer acknowledged to be the primary belief, but many of us find ourselves at ease in Catholic, um, Protestant, or Jewish Jewish churches, so long as the priest in charge does not try to force us to accept the ancient trappings of the religion. Pope John is one of our big heroes. The new lifestyle can find no place for patriotism in the old sense, and respect for the military has been replaced by contempt. These are the direct consequences of the Vietnam War and the draft that was needed to support it. A generation of our young men have had to grapple with one of the most confusing draft systems ever devised by a democracy, and they have grown to hate it and everything associated with it. When an older man tries to tell us that he fought in Germany, or in the South Pacific, to preserve the American way of life, we tune him out as some kind of bore. Ancient symbols of patriotism, such as flags and martial music, we dismiss with impatience if we are philosophically minded, with contempt if we are activists, and with physical violence if we are revolutionaries. If America were to be threatened with invasion, enormous numbers of our group would volunteer to defend her. But the idea of going to Vietnam to fight in an undeclared war for uncertain principles is repugnant and must be opposed. We have a deep respect for work, but only if, uh, but only if it is work we initiate and whose utility we understand. In many of our homes, you find women baking bread in the old manner and men building the furniture they need. Farming is held in profound respect, and hand trades like carpentry, electric repair, and automotive overhaul are dignified as arts. But the 9-to-5 job, especially if it, if it involves competition, is viewed with distaste. The more basic the job, the more acceptable. Many young men work uh, with long hair, work incredibly hard as stevedores, truck drivers, day laborers, and hospital attendants. What we all avoid is the respectable white-collar job which our fathers tried so hard to land. As for allegiance to a great corporation, this no longer exists among us as we believe it is diminishing among those who follow the older style. Problems of the family are discussed endlessly whenever we new-style people get together. Many of us, especially the girls, reject traditional marriage as a pattern of life, although we may accept it in our 30s after having lived with various partners during our 20s. Children are treated with special love, as are the inevitable pets one finds in our group. Chastity is never mentioned, and virginity is a temporary irritation. Love, the capacity to relate to other human beings, and the willingness to make concessions to them, is one of the noblest ideals of our group. 
And when marriages do result from long association in our free and easy world, they are apt to be good and well-founded. Love, in the sense this word is used in the New Testament, is perhaps better understood by our group than it is by the old. Sex is unimportant in that it is no longer a hang-up and is therefore not the subject of endless discussion. If you are attracted to someone of the opposite sex, do something about it. Get it out of your system and then see what permanent values may result. Why do we dress the way we do? We interpret the sterile uniforms worn by old-style people as restrictive and stultifying. Why should a young man wear a gray flannel suit merely to gratify the prejudices of his employer? We prefer the colorful costumes of American history. We want to look the way real heroes looked. Daniel Boone, Kit Carson, the women who crossed the prairies in Conestoga wagons. Girls reject the brassiere as a stigma of middle-class confinement and loss of freedom. Steel-rimmed granny glasses are preferred because they don't try to add fake prettiness to the human face. We go barefoot whenever possible because shoes are a drag. And although some of us incline toward shabby clothes as a mark of our disrespect, most of us are meticulous in personal cleanliness because we know it's good for our health. So, end of the long quote. For younger, uh, for people of the older lifestyle, I should say, for people, older people, all of this was just intolerable. Michener provides uh, old-style counter-arguments, you know, counter-arguments from the perspective of the older generation for most of the points that he just made. But to keep things moving, I'm not going to quote all of these here. Uh, Michener, for his own part, thought that some kind of moderation was needed on the part of young people, but also that older people, who were supposed to be wiser anyway, ought to be more tolerant of the younger generation, even though they might not support everything um, about this new lifestyle. It's important to mention uh, the war in Vietnam and the military draft that went with it. These were major grievances of young people in the book. They're mentioned uh, in the quotation above, where the war and the draft are given as causes for uh, decreasing patriotism and decreasing support for the military. This is surely true. Uh, I think many people would now agree that the U.S. government damaged its legitimacy through its de uh, decisions regarding Vietnam. Uh, but Michener also argues that the issue of Vietnam is somewhat misleading. If the war in Vietnam hadn't happened, he argues or suggests, uh, something else would have taken its place as a cause of antisocial or countercultural feeling. And we can know this because during the 1960s, many other countries around the world, which were not involved in Vietnam, went through very similar periods of social up, uh, upheaval. And some of these were even more violent than what the United States experienced. Um, although it's hard to appreciate now just how violent things were for a time in the 1960s and 70s in the United States. Uh, so Michener writes that uh, if one fails to see that the revolts in Japan, France, Venezuela, and the United States are identical in every aspect that matters, he misses the whole point of what is happening in the world. So what, uh, what was actually happening in the world? Well, there's various theories, and I'll try to address some of these in the future. Michener does not really present an explanation of his own, except to say that all of these movements were based in uh, Marxism. But why... I would ask, why did these Marxist or Marxism-adjacent movements spring up in so many places and with such a big impact at around the same time? I mean, what accounts for this particular timing? Uh, well, I'm not going to try to answer that at the moment, So I wanna, but I want to pivot. Instead, I'm going to pivot and say something about language, the other part of 
what I want to talk about today. This was a part of the book which I found to be especially fascinating. Aside from the long hair of the men, one of the things that the ordinary people of Kent found so repellent about young people was the use of obscenity, especially by young women. Michener writes, quote, the perilous gap existing between townspeople and students often stems from the use of foul language, especially by girls. And Michener offers two basic explanations of this. One explanation comes from a, a Kent State chemistry instructor named Robert Franklin. In Franklin's view, the use of obscene language is about identity. It's about creating and maintaining a unique in-group identity vis-a-vis -vis traditional society. The language of the youth, he says, or Robert Franklin says, was forced to go obscene, was forced to become obscene because mainstream culture kept co-opting the special language that young people had developed. So Michener uh, quotes Franklin as saying, we used to say cool it man, and now you'll see this in advertisements everywhere. We said get it together man, and now you see the Dodge people using it as their slogan. We said things like blow your mind, and Harper's Bazaar is advising women whose husbands earn $50,000 a year to blow their minds with pink blouses. Psychedelic trip right on, letting it all hang out, it's what's happening, getting it all together, laying down a good rap. These were all stolen from us and put to the most banal uses. So in self-defense, we have retreated to the no-retreat words, and we defy Madison Avenue to steal them from us. Alright, so in Franklin's account, young people use extreme language to protect it from being stolen. Though Franklin also adds that we seek to outrage those who have been outraging us. So it's not just to protect identity, they're also... Uh, trying to outrage the older generation who they think has done so many crappy things. But Michener sees another region, uh, reason which, he says, perhaps comes closer to the truth. So he writes, Numerous committed revolutionaries have preached that the debasement of language is one of the most powerful agencies for the destruction of existing society. They argue, if you, want, uh, if you destroy the word, you can destroy the system. And they have set out consciously to do both. So we can say uh, that a social system maintains itself through language because it's how the different parts of the system communicate. They need to use language. And if you destroy the language, then you can rebuild it yourself and you can control it and you can control the systems that are based on it. It seems to be the logic. But another thing Michener mentions is that destroying language is, an, is also an easy way to begin a revolution. It's an easy first step compared to, say, dynamiting a building. It's a, it's a way to ease yourself into revolution. If you can get away with speaking forbidden words, you start to think you can get away with other things. So there were probably a variety of reasons that young people gravitated toward obscenity to shock or outrage the older generations, to create a unique identity for themselves, to attack existing social systems, to get initiated into revolutionary activity. So many, probably several reasons working together. But Michener then gives us a warning or gives his readers a warning. He writes, the danger in this game is one that has helped cause the downfall of many democracies. 
if the middle class begin to feel that their everyday standards of decency have been outraged, they will willingly follow the first repressive leader who cries, let's restore decency. I have to interrupt and say that here, of course, I, I couldn't help thinking of make America great again, whether that's fair or not. But let me continue with the quotation. Uh, this happened in pre-Nazi Germany, in Singapore, in Argentina, and recently in Greece, to name only four instances among many. It could very easily happen in the United States, and soon. The way to avoid it is to follow a prudent line between puritanical restraint on the one hand and offensive license on the other, and the young people of America had better find that line. Michener ends his consideration of language with a finer, final ir irony, which I can't resist adding. Also, he says, the white leaders who complain that their colorful language has been filched from them by Madison Avenue forget to state that they stole it from the blacks. Okay, well, to conclude, this is all I wanted to say uh, at the moment about lifestyle and language in the uh, 1960s, 1970s period. The lifestyle, including the language of the young people in the 1960s developed, seems to have developed in direct opposition to the lifestyle of their parents and grandparents. As a nationwide and even worldwide phenomenon, this seems without precedent and without any later parallel. Uh, not every young person participated, of course, but it's hard to think of another historical moment when so many members of a generation rejected so absolutely the culture of the previous generation. Certainly, I don't think my own generation did that. Uh, what were the exact causes of this rejection, which affected nearly every aspect of Western culture? Uh, in the future, I'll explore other aspects and explanations of the 1960s and 1970s through the eyes and ideas of other smart people alive at the time. So I'll maybe come up with some answer to this question eventually that I think is uh, viable. But that is all for now. That is all for today. As always, thanks for listening and please come again.